This is Beyond the Couch with Bridges, a podcast at the intersection of Asian Pacific Islander, South Asian American identity and mental health. I'm Christy. I'm Sam. And I'm Diana. We are three therapists who got together in the hopes of demystifying therapy and uplifting stories from our community. Each week, we'll connect with fellow therapists, experts, and community members about life, identity, and healing. We're so glad you're joining us today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Beyond the Couch with Bridges Mental Health. I'm Sam. And I'm Diana. And we are here today to return to a previous topic of um, career transitions, therapy careers. We've received a lot of uh, questions from all of you, and we're going to go through a few of them today. Yeah, and this is a follow-up from another episode that Diana and Christy recorded together a couple of weeks ago, which, so if your questions aren't answered here and you haven't listened to that one, give it a listen. Maybe they talk about it there, but we'll try to get to some new stuff here um, with some follow-up questions that we got. Okay, so should we just jump in and do it? Yeah, yeah, let's jump in. Okay, so the first question that we got was, did you work while you were in graduate school? You know, for me, I did work uh, maybe about like after the first semester because I ended up securing a graduate assistant position. And I think this is actually one of those little secrets of grad school that could be really helpful for anyone who is seeking financial assistance with tuition. Um, the program that I was in or the grad, the grad school that I was in had these positions where if you worked for a department in the grad school, any, any department, didn't have to be the counseling department, just any department, and you did 20 to 25 hours of work for the professors in that department, then they would basically give you free tuition for up to four classes per semester. There was some scheduling that you had to do around like how many per semester, like it's four during the fall and spring, two during the summer, you had to kind of work it out. But in the end, I was able to get a lot, like majority of my tuition reimbursed. So that was the work that I did at school. But prior to that, I thought about getting a job and in the end, uh, I wasn't able to really think of a job that was flexible enough with the school schedule and like having to do the homework and everything. So I sort of, you know, stumbled into this graduate position, but that was the best fit because they're really flexible with your time and work around your schedule for the 20 to 25 hours. So that is such a great tip, Diana. You know, I had a friend in graduate school who did something similar, and I'm not sure if it was exactly the same as the reimbursement for classes, but she was getting I think paid pretty, pretty mm-hmm. well for, you know, doing not a lot of work for the professor that she was working with. Cause I think it just depends also who you end up yeah. doing your assistantship with. But I was very jealous when I found out that that was an option. Cause I, I also worked in graduate school. I worked as a nanny. So typically I think usually I was working around 20 hours a week um, since it was a nannying position, you know, I would mostly just pick up the kids after school. I was able to sort of work it around with my class schedule and the family I was working with was pretty flexible if we needed to change things semester to semester. And then my last semester of graduate school, I had actually taken uh, an extra class in the summer semester. So I think I was only in three classes my last semester of graduate school. And so then I upped my hours and was working more like 30 hours a week instead. But I think this one, it really depends on what kind of a program you go to, because 
the program that Diana and I both attended, which are different programs, but they're really meant for full-time students. So I don't think it's as accommodating for people who may want to keep their full-time job and then go to night classes. But there are programs out there that are either fully online or really more designed for nighttime classes to accommodate a full-time job or working more. So I, I think there are options. It's just a question of what exactly your needs are. But it sounds like we were both able to work to some degree during graduate school and it felt sustainable enough. Yeah. I think the one time though, where it was difficult was during like internship time, right? Like being, cause you have to commit a certain number of, number of hours to your internship site. And that makes it hard to balance another sort of intensive job, I think. Yeah. yeah. And you're balancing another schedule. So it it's, I think if you can find a position that's flexible in terms of the hours that you can work, that's typically what works the best if you're a full-time student. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard because you know, when you're working part-time, the money you're making there, it's like you compare it to the cost of tuition. It's like, oh, is it making that big of a difference? It is helping. And I think you have to figure out what what works for you financially and just like wanting to dedicate the right amount of time to school. Definitely. And I will actually say that at least in my experience from talking to other classmates, most of my classmates didn't work. They were just full-time students. They mm -hmm. had either taken out loans or maybe were getting help from their family. So I actually think that at least among my cohort, it was I was a little bit of an anomaly in the fact that I had a part-time job, but I was making enough to cover my rent. And so to me, it felt like that made sense and that was a worthwhile exchange. But like Diana said, I, I think it depends person to person in terms of what your specific needs are. Okay. Yeah. So... Let's see. Next question. Could you outline the time it took at each step from starting graduate courses to now? Oh, okay. I, this one, mm -hmm. I, I think it, it depends person to person. I mean, we can speak, I guess, to our own personal experience for this. Let's see how long it took at each step. I'd say I spent, well, I studied psychology in undergrad as one of my majors. So I didn't have any backup courses or anything like that, that I needed to do to prepare for applying. So I took off a couple of years. I worked for a few years, then applied to graduate school. Grad school took, I think it was, how long did it take Diana for our program? I mean, like, uh, I think like five, two and a half years. Okay. Yeah. Two yeah. And a half years. Yeah. Five semesters essentially. Um, some programs are three. I think some programs are only two. So I think it depends I also know some people in my cohort who, you know, had a smaller caseload of classes for whatever reason. And so it took them a little bit longer. You know, it's not uncommon to graduate maybe a semester later or still walk, but still have a few classes that you need to do for whatever reason. And then I went, I took off a month to travel after I finished. And then I went straight to working and it took me a little over two years to get my full licensure after being supervised with a limited permit, which for folks who may be interested in a social work degree would be similar to the supervised hours you do as just an MSW in order to get your C, so your LCSW. Um, and then Two years is actually a little bit long for the licensed hours because I was working in private practice for most of it at a group practice. You just do less paperwork. So most of your hours are client facing. And so that's actually a little bit slow. I've heard of people doing it in somewhere between a year and a half to the two years typically. Yeah, actually that was the case for me. Yeah. I think I did it in exactly a year and a half because 
for the mental health counseling route uh, at the time, I don't know if this is still the same now, but the maximum number of hours that you could count per week towards these supervised hours was 45 hours. And if you calculate that out and you're working a full-time job, it comes out to like exactly a year and a half that you could finish the 3000 hours. And then yeah. what about the rest of your, your path after getting your license? Oh, that's right. And so then I, so, you know, once you get your license, you're then kind of free to do whatever you want. You can work at an agency or a clinic or whatever it is. I stayed where I was working at the group practice for a couple more years and I worked as a clinical supervisor. It was a great job. So people stay in those roles for a long time if they feel like it's fitting their needs. I did that for a number of years after finishing my licensure. And then I transitioned into my own private practice just a couple months ago. So yes, congrats. It's it's very new and exciting. Um, But I'm also really glad that I had those years of experience working for another group practice for a while to sort of get a sense of what it really takes to build up my caseload. So that's kind of my path of what I took, but it, it really depends person to person. D- Diana, what would you say yours was? How long did it kind of take you for you to get where you are? Yeah, I feel like we had like sort of a similar approach in that we both ended up in private practice relatively quickly. So I, well, the thing is I started, let's see, graduate school. I started in 2014 in September and I finished in like December, 2016. So maybe it's a little faster than I thought. Yeah. December, 2016. And, um, I also did a mental health counseling degree and immediately after I also took a month off to, (laughs) to travel and then started at a community mental health care clinic in the same role that I had interned at previously. So it was a very smooth transition. And, um, I was there for just about two years. Yeah. Two years. And within that time, I got my license and uh, I got my license after a year and a half. And I remember at that point, they asked if I wanted to be a clinical supervisor at the clinic and, you know, you, your salary goes up. But at that point, I had already had in my mind that I wanted to go into private practice. And I was interviewing at a lot of group practices, trying to figure out a place that would you know, give me a soft landing to learn more about like how, how it is to work with clients in private practice, um, trying to balance out like what benefits they offered, things like that, and what kind of like training opportunities I would have. And I ended up at this group practice in Midtown that accepted insurance and they worked with a lot of uh, college counseling centers for their referrals. So working with the right, you know, population for me, that was my interest, um, young adults or like working professionals. And I stayed there for about a year and a few months. Um, I started in February, 2019. And then by December of that year, I knew that I wanted to, you know, add on my own private practice. And so I was thinking I could work with them, continue to work with the group practice for some time and then start building up my own private practice office space pandemic happened. And then say then we all know what happened not too long after that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the plan kind of like disappeared. I decided I I did not need office space after all. And then I, um, uh, my group practice ended up just like transitioning a lot of the clients to me because with everything going on, sometimes that can be a little complicated when you leave a place and you're 
built up your client caseload and then you try to leave, but it worked out really smoothly. And also because of the pandemic, there were just so many people who were suddenly wanting to start therapy. So I, I was just telling Sam earlier today, I felt like I didn't, it wasn't very uh, difficult, like starting private practice because there's just a steady stream of like people seeking therapy. So yeah, 2014 to now, and now I've been in private practice. So I started private practice officially, like around that time, pandemic time, left that group practice. And it felt really seamless because I had, you know, had a really good experience observing the group practice, their systems and, and just like pretty quickly learned how I'd like adapt it to just like a solo private practice and took the leap like in early 2020 and have been in solo private practice ever since. Yeah. So definitely took time from starting school in 2014 until now, but it's um, definitely something once you get through the first few like check marks, the path is very clear. Like you have to go to school, you have to get your hours, but once you get your license, then you are really able to do so much. And I think one thing we didn't talk about is like along the way, we were also doing training. So it wasn't like we finished school and then we were just done clinically. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that actually, if you want to enter this field, you have to accept that you will need to continue your education for the rest of your career as part of one of the requirements for continuing your license every time it's up for renewal is that you have to complete a certain number of continuing education courses or credits, um, which you can do through, you know, every once in a while, you can find one that offers them for free. A lot of times you have to pay for the training, which is understandable, but it is a way to sort of encourage practitioners to just continue staying up to date with new practices, continuing to hone your skills and get better because there's actually been a lot of research that's come out about the fact that as you actually get older, sometimes you become a worse therapist. So oh. <laughs> this is something that I think they've introduced to try to curb that, um, to kind of keep people yeah. current and continuing to hone their skills as they get older and stay in the field. And that actually, Diane, I think what you mentioned, it, it is maybe a good transition to another question that we got, which is what kind of jobs are possible for LMHCs or people who enter this field postgraduate school? And I think that Diane and I outlined one path, which is that, you know, for a little while, and I think Christy, it was similar. We worked for an agency and then we transitioned into private practice while we were still being uh, supervised. But there's also a ton of other different kinds of settings and avenues that people take in this work. And like Diana said, once you have your L or your full licensure, you can really do a, a lot of stuff. Some of the stuff yeah. that we have outlined here is working in community-based clinics, which um, I have a little bit of experience in while I was still being supervised. It's oftentimes working with mostly folks who are low income, depending on the community or neighborhood you live in. They offer all kinds of services, you know, individual therapy, couples therapy, group therapy, most places, but they'll also offer alternative services, things like home-based therapy, which is what I was doing, where I would I was working with families who were in some way involved with child protective services or the association for child safety and would go to their home and I would do family therapy with them there, which also meant that sometimes we weren't necessarily doing quote unquote, what we would think of as traditional talk therapy. Sometimes it was really sort of being in their home and making a plan of like, how are we going to clean up this place? There's like stuff everywhere and sort of working on a plan and then actually doing it together or sort of facilitating them, figuring out how they might do it on their own for community clinics and settings. Anything else there, Diana, that I, that I might be forgetting? Hmm. Yeah. And also, I guess also hospitals and mm -hmm. outpatient 
centers, like there are certain places where they have a very like built out outpatient sort of facility for um, mental health and primary care. And sometimes they're grouped together. So you could be in a practice like that. And I know this question is specific. It says uh, possible for LMHCs. But also, you know, if you end up pursuing a different path, like social work or psychology or PsyD or marriage and family therapy, there's there's some variation state to state as to like which positions are easier for which licensure, for which licensed professional. I definitely know that, you know, in New York state, if you have a social work license and you're an LCSW, like you can find them in lots of places, right? It's not just clinical work. It can also be administrative. It can be other types of roles. So that's also possible for LMHCs, but I feel like for social work, that's definitely been more of like uh, where you find these different roles, but yeah, maybe you know more of that, but that's a really good point. Cause you know, even where I interned or did my internship in graduate school, they actually wanted me to stay on. And I was, I was interested in it, but everybody who was working there was a social worker. And so their budget didn't have anything written in that would allow for the hiring of an LMHC same. or an MHC. Yeah. That was so, the same thing for me. Yeah. yeah. And they were like, we could, we need to bring it up to the department. It was a hospital. So there's just a lot of administrative red tape and this feeling of it might be possible, but it would probably take months. And was I willing to wait that long for the position and did I really want it that bad? And so there are certain limitations, I think, depending on the kind of degree that make working in certain settings harder. Like Diana said, if you're working in a hospital, I think it is a lot easier to get positions if you have a social work degree versus an MHC or an MFT. But that's just in New York. I mean, I know in California, I think licensed marriage and family therapy is sort of considered their gold standard, or there's a lot more of them there. So there's a lot more opportunity. That being said, it's really changing. And I think the more that people learn about the field in general, we realize that although there are nuances that a lot of times the work is somewhat interchangeable between degree. And so so I I feel that that's changing and that there's generally a lot of opportunities for MHCs, um, at least in New York state from my experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's definitely changed even since we started in the field. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Do we have time for one more question? Let's see. This one is really piquing my interest. Maybe we can do this one in our last few minutes, which is, did you feel your graduate programs prepared you for success post-grad? Okay. Why don't you start? Because I think we've had different experiences (laughs) here. (laughs) I think that this is a really nuanced question. And there are certain parts that I feel like my program prepared me for really well. And certain things that I feel like I didn't know anything about going into the field. And it, I imagine really depends person to person or program to program. I felt like my my program did a really good job in terms of offering experiential courses and opportunities to learn through practicing. They've actually changed this in my program, which is somewhat unfortunate, but one of the classes that you had to take was essentially working in their counseling center. So that was the whole class essentially was you working with a client, then meeting once a week and talking about that experience. But most of the skills really that I learned, I learned through internship. I think when people ask about how important which graduate school you go to, I I will say if there are certain things that you really care about or feel like you need to go to a school with the specialty, then fine. But for the most part, I don't know how much of a difference it really makes. And that a lot of the skills that you're going to learn, if you can get a good internship experience, you're going to learn so much more in that setting. And you can kind of compensate for maybe a lack of certain things that you're getting in your program through your internship experience like that. And I think the things that maybe I felt a little less prepared for was the stuff around licensing, um, navigating the administrative parts of this field, 
even the process of like getting your license, I felt like there wasn't a lot of assistance or help from the program, kind of figuring out, helping us figure out the steps that we needed to do. So, you know, no program is perfect. And I think that I definitely learned things in my program. I think that there's also a degree to which you can get out what you're willing to put in. You know, I had friendly relationships and fostered relationships with some of my professors, which I feel like that really helped me in a lot of ways, but not everybody did that. So, which is also understandable if you've got limitation for time or you want to focus on other things. So I think it depends, but my general feeling is that the internship experience is the most important thing. And the more experiential um, experiences you can sign yourself up for in graduate school, the better, and hopefully the more prepared you're going to feel to actually practice. Yeah. I think actually our experiences are similar in that way. I definitely felt like, you know, my overall opinion of graduate school is just that it's kind of a racket and you're paying for a certificate for the degree, for the right to do something afterwards. And unless you're choosing in in a field like that, there's, you know, just like a lot of prestigious schools or like, you know, like business school, law school, medical school, those are very like, specific areas that you go into and you know like the top schools there the top ranked schools and if you're not going into like a top ranked school you I don't know if there's really like a top ranked school for for like mental health but like I think it's very similar and it's more about what you make of the experience like do you go to class are you there doing the reading are you asking Mm -hmm. questions are you trying to learn on your own and I think that I definitely went into this program because I was a career changer, you know, just the fact that I was going back meant like, okay, I'm really committing to this. Um, Whereas I think that some of my peers or my classmates, like they went into it directly from undergrad because they majored in psychology. It felt like the natural thing to do. And maybe it wasn't like such an active decision for them. Um, But I went in like, okay, I don't have this background. I need to learn the background and really apply myself here and also became very close with several professors. I ended up working in the department and really got a lot from those relationships and just asking a lot of questions so that when it was time to then get those internships, because our school didn't really have established relationships with internship sites. So we had to do a lot of our own job search, internship search. And that just basically meant like, I was just like, looking up the clinics near Queens or, you know, private practices or like just anything that sounded interesting. And then, you know, if they weren't taking interns, I'd ask them is, do you know of another clinic close by that is taking interns and just really doing the internship search in that way. And I think like, because I had worked before and I had was really dedicated to this, like it didn't seem like a difficult thing, but I could see how for a student who's like, okay, now I have to find my own internship. Okay. That sounds really daunting. But I think that because our program didn't have that many relationships at the time, it was more on our, you know, shoulders to do that. I think things have changed certainly since I was in school, there's more established, you know, relationships because of us, you know, going into these clinics. So I think like the internships definitely prepared me clinically and I think the the downside, maybe like what we didn't learn very much of was like for anybody who was interested in private practice, it wasn't talked about because most of our professors weren't really in private practice. And I think there was also this like mm, perspective that, you know, when you leave graduate school, you're not going to be making a lot of money, which mm-hmm. is not true, really not true. But that was like what everybody thought. 
in in this program. And I think it wasn't until, you know, I started talking to other people in private practice, working in a private practice that I really got a sense of like, oh yeah, it is really possible to have a very sustainable career as a private practice therapist and to do other things as well if you want to. So yeah, I think that was my, uh, my summary of the experience that I had. Yeah. Yeah. And Diane, I think you bring up a good point too, about even the energy that you bring into the program, because one thing that I was thinking as you were speaking, you know, you mentioned the students who maybe came straight from undergrad and just sort of felt like, yeah, this is the thing that I'm going to do. And this makes sense. One thing that I feel like the graduate program that I went to didn't really do well is they didn't do the really a great job at screening candidates, if that makes mm, sense. That's true. In, yep, in the I sense agree. of, I'm sure everybody who got, you know, I, I went to like a, a well-known school. I'm sure everybody who got in had good grades um, yeah. or good work experience, but there were a number of people in the program who were doing it. And being a therapist is a very specific kind of job and realized that they didn't really like it. And they didn't like sitting with uncomfortable emotions or people who are upset and that the nature of the work wasn't actually a good fit for them. And I, I think that that's one thing that the graduate school program admissions doesn't really prepare you for. So don't expect don't expect them to screen you out it, because it's sort of like you getting in means that you're going to be good for this field. I think that you really got to do kind of your own independent research into figuring out whether or not you would really like doing this kind of work because it is very specific work and there's a a degree of liability and risk involved. Like you are working with people and you're talking about sensitive things and you know their well-being and safety is a part of that. And uh, some of my cohorts felt very uncomfortable with that idea. And they ended up not actually doing this work and they paid mm. a lot of money to be in this program. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. We, we definitely have more questions here to answer. So we'll maybe have to do another part to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll do a part three. And if if this episode brought up any additional questions or things that you want to hear more about, email us, reach out to us on Instagram, let us know. And we're, we're happy to do a follow-up to this one as well. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks everybody for listening and we will talk to you all soon. Bye everybody. Bye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Beyond the Couch. Tune in every Wednesday, rate or review us to help grow our community and subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. We'd love to hear from you. So connect with us on Instagram at Bridges Mental Health. <laughs> <laughs>